Well, it's nice to see everybody. I didn't expect to see you tonight. Uh, you, I'm not Sue. You notice she was supposed to have uh, given a talk this evening because I'm still in New York with my family. This is our last uh, evening together. We're we're leaving in the morning. Uh, but Sue got the flu, and she had a pretty bad flu. I, I think I see her on the screen, so I, I, I guess she's here. Feeling... Um, turn on my video. I don't know why I'm unable to turn on my video, but thank you for being there instead of me. I'm so sorry. I couldn't help you tonight. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're that you're better. It sounded like a really nasty flu. Yeah, I have a ways to go. So... That's why that's why uh, I'm here instead of uh, instead of so she she was sick and thinking she would still be able to do the talk. But then uh, a couple of days ago, she realized she wasn't going to be able to do it. So, so I'm, I'm happy, very happy to be here with you uh, because I love to come to seminar and, and love to think about these teachings. Also, yeah. Steve uh, Gross has is sick too it has pneumonia someone told me is that is that right steve yeah 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 so i'm sorry to hear that and we're gonna maybe we'll chant uh, steve's name tonight to uh pray for his recovery you know, so it's uh 8 33 here in here in brooklyn it's very cold today about 22 degrees <laughs> and ice from a snow and a melt and then a freezing. Uh, and I'm with uh, both of our sons live here in Brooklyn and they both have families. And right now, everybody, the whole family is upstairs. I'm down in the, in the basement here. <laughs> and everybody's doing great. Uh, so uh, all the families are well, all the children are well. So I'm a happy person. And uh, we're going to fly home early tomorrow morning. It'll be nice to be home. So I'm continuing uh, with talking about Vasubandhu's 30 verses. Uh, sorry, not 30 verses. Vasubandhu's three natures. Uh, and last, last week, we got up to verse 30. So tonight, uh, we begin with verse 31. And I didn't, uh, of course, as I said, I didn't expect to be giving the talk tonight, so I didn't bring Ben's book with me. I also didn't bring my rakasu, so I apologize uh, for not wearing my rakasu for this for this talk, which I always do. Uh, but but uh, not having Ben's book is okay because uh, I did have uh, Jay Garfield's, the, you know, the uh, electronic version of Jay Garfield's translation and commentary. So I'm going to be using that exclusively tonight. And then when I go home, I'll, I'll see what Ben has to say about these verses. Maybe I'll, uh, if there's anything that I want to bring up, I can bring it up in the next week or the week after that. So this is all going to be uh, from Jay Garfield. Verse 31, when one understands, oh, uh, by the way, John, is there a recording for this? Because I didn't uh, get yes, it's being recorded right now. 
Okay, I didn't get the notice from Zoom that it's being recorded, but it is okay because I'm not recording on my audio machine, which I also don't have here. Right. Anyway, um, verse 31. When one understands how things are, perfect knowledge, abandonment, and accomplishment, these three characteristics are simultaneously achieved. When one understands how things are, perfect knowledge, abandonment, and accomplished, an accomplishment. These three characteristics are simultaneously achieved. And Jay's commentary on these lines is pretty brief, so I'm going to read you the whole thing. It's it's in a few sentences he pretty well explains what those lines are saying. And this is Jay. To understand how things are is to understand all three natures simultaneously and in their correct relations to one another. This amounts to perfect knowledge of the ontology of the world and of the character of one's own subjectivity. And that in turn is to abandon attachment to the imagined phenomena craved by one who believes them to be real as they appear in imagination. And that, that abandonment is to accomplish the goal of perfect insight into the nature of things and consequent freedom from craving that is the necessary condition of ignorance and afflictive action. That's Jay's commentary. Before he um, translates verse 31, he says that the remaining verses of the text, meaning all the ones we still have to cover from 31 through 38, which is the final verse, all these verses uh, turn toward the question of the spiritual or religious significance of this description of reality or analysis of reality that Vasubandha has been engaging in throughout the text. But I've been bringing this up all along, even though here at the end he mentions it specifically. I've been bringing this up all along because the whole time that we've been reading this text, I've been trying to say over and over again, and I think I've said it many, many times, the point is not to understand or follow Vasubandhu's argument. The point is not that Vasubandhu thinks he has the true description of reality as it, as it is, and we should all understand and, and, and you know, know that description. That's not what why this text is proposed. And the truth is, some of you, I've heard from some of you that that you've been scratching your head, you know, all these weeks. And good for you, you're hanging in there, you know, and stay interested somehow. But a lot of you have been saying, geez, you know, I, I really have a hard time following this. And it is hard to follow. 
especially if you're not used to the customs and categories of Indian Buddhist thought. So I've been saying all along, you know, don't worry so much about the details. Just remember the main thrust of what he's saying and remember the point of why it is he's saying this to begin with. He's saying all of this to help us to understand the world in such a way that we can heal and we can cope with and we can even eventually transcend our human suffering without abandoning suffering and beings who suffer. That's what he's, that's the point of all of this. So here in these last lines, uh, these last verses, Basubandhu is saying this very directly. This is the point. This is why all that I've said so far in the first 30 verses is important. When one understands how things are, which is what I've been saying, Basubandhu says in the, in the previous 30 verses, when you understand what I've been saying in the previous 30 verses, you will then have perfect knowledge, abandonment, and accomplishment. These characteristics are characteristics that describe a Buddha. And in their perfect form, they are the idealized personal qualities of a shining Buddha. And for us regular people in the world who are trying to practice, who don't really necessarily claim to be shining Buddhas or think that we're shining Buddhas, the three natures and Vasubandhu's understanding of them represent a kind of horizon of possibility. They, they represent what we are trying to develop in our practice and realize in our practice to whatever extent we're able in this short human lifetime. So, so even if we're not planning on being Buddhists, we, we find this discussion really important because that's the direction we're going in and Vasubandhu is telling us about our journey. In Mahayana Buddhism, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are ideals, which means they are not real in any ordinary sense. They are cherished possibilities of the human heart, possibilities we yearn for and work toward, and they define what is most sacred and most important about being human beings. What makes us really special is not that we're so smart and so competent and capable and we do the most amazing things, although we do do incredibly amazing things. The existence, you know, of a computer chip is an unbelievable. Sorry, I'm thing. having trouble. Please oh. try in a little while. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yeah, that's uh, Alexa. Somehow they have Alexa hooked up down here. I don't know why she's talking to me. Anyway, stuff like Alexa is really impressive, but that's not what's so great, I think, about human beings. 
I, I'm not sure that here in New York, you know, there's some rather extraordinary uh, buildings. I was in Manhattan today because our son goes to high school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. But from all the way here in Brooklyn, he takes the train 45 minutes to go to high school. So we went to his high school. And uh, the skyscrapers of New York are really something amazing. But I'm not sure that a skyscraper in New York is more amazing than the eye of a fly. Or, uh, for that matter, the eye of a human being. Uh, neither of which we created. Or I'm not sure we are capable of creating such things. So no, that's not what makes us truly remarkable. What makes us truly valuable and amazing creatures is our Buddhahood, our human potential for imagination and love and understanding. And even though none of us are manifesting these things perfectly, and we'll never manifest them perfectly as long as we're still living in the flesh, we do sincerely dedicate ourselves to striving for them. And to some extent, not only striving, but making them real in our lives. These three characteristics, perfect knowledge, abandonment, and accomplishment. So perfect knowledge is knowing how things really are as defined by the three characteristics. It's knowing things as they truly are in their thusness, as we say in Zen, in their just so-ness. And in terms of this text, seeing things as they really are means seeing the three natures in their proper relations. Knowing that every experience we ever have is always imaginary, dependent, and completely realized. And actually knowing this to be so on the level of our perception and our thinking and our living. And again, perfect knowledge doesn't mean that we know a bunch of stuff or, or even that we know uh, Vasubandhu's text and are able to expound it. It means seeing the true import of the text, the point of the text, directly and living it every moment. And in Zen, you know, Zen sort of specializes in, in examples of people who have perfect knowledge and yet don't appear in the world as sages or shining, brilliant Buddhas. One of my favorite such figures is the Japanese monk uh, Ryokan who lived uh, his life as a village hermit, a simple priest, you know, who lived in a little hut, playing ball with children uh, and writing uh, simple poems. In, in the ancient uh, Chinese Chan tradition, many centuries before Ryokan, we have the tradition of the tea ladies 
whose function seems to be to show up the pompous Zen masters for being too haughty and lacking, you know, real understanding. The other day, some of us were talking about the story of the old lady who sold tea, tea cakes and tea by the side of the road. The word for tea cake in Tang Dynasty China was literally the word meant mind refreshers. So she was selling mind refreshers by the side of the road when along comes the great teacher Deshan, who was the master of the Diamond Sutra. And he asked her for a mind refresher. And the old lady said to him, the Diamond Sutra says, past mind cannot be grasped, present mind cannot be grasped, and future mind cannot be grasped. So which mind, oh great Zen master, do you intend to refresh with this tea cake? And Deshan realized in that moment that although he could expound the Diamond Sutra probably better than anybody in all of China, he didn't understand it nearly as well as this old tea lady who probably couldn't read it. Similarly, the sixth ancestor who, who couldn't read, we learn, was suddenly awakened when he heard a line from the Diamond Sutra, call forth a mind not supported anywhere, not supported by sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, or mind objects. He heard that line and immediately he had perfect understanding. He couldn't read the sutra, but he didn't need to. He had perfect knowledge of it. Jay in his commentary says, perfect knowledge involves perfect knowledge of the ontology of the world and of the character of one's own subjectivity. So in seeing how the world really is, we see ourselves as we really are. We see that we are not and have never been as we thought we were, sad and isolated beings awash in the great world. We are the great world itself. We are the eye of the world, the ear of the world. We let go of our manufactured separateness. We stop experiencing ourselves that way. And we appreciate all the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and volitions that arise and pass away all the time. And we understand them not as ours, but as expressions of the great earth and the endless sky passing through here in this place. When we know that, naturally, we will practice abandonment, abandoning attachment and craving to the phenomenal world. And that's what frees you from suffering and the causes of suffering, because that is the cause of suffering, craving and clinging to the phenomenal world. 
you hear the word abandon in our contemporary vocabulary, it doesn't sound too nice. We don't want to abandon anything. And we don't want to be abandoned. But here, you know, the whole context and vocabulary that surrounds this word is completely different. And the word has a joyful meaning. Because we have perfect knowledge in this sense, we see that there is literally nothing to cling to. There's nothing to hold on to. And this is marvelous because clinging and holding on is painful. It hurts ourselves and it hurts those we cling to. It really is the cause of suffering really is the source of all human pain. And so we know now that there's nothing to cling to. So we abandon clinging effortlessly. You know, it's not that we take a vow to renounce things that we really cherish and want, but we're being noble and we're giving them up. It isn't like that. This abandonment is easy and joyful and natural. And the clinging and the fear and the desperation that underlies so much of our lives is replaced by love and a true appreciation of everything. The sticky, troublesome, painful suffering of our lives really ends. And, and someone who knows that and has practiced abandonment in that way is a Buddha, the accomplished one. On the morning of his awakening, the Buddha declares something like, all that had to be accomplished has been accomplished. So the, the, the accomplished one is a, is a phrase that describes the Buddha. And again, this has a very different flavor in our vocabulary. To us, uh, accomplishment means that we achieve something through talent or hard work, something that makes us special that others have not achieved. But here, accomplishment doesn't mean anything like that. It refers to this quiet sense of knowing that there is nothing more that needs to be done. There is nothing left for us to prove or do. Of course, bodhisattvas keep on practicing because when you commit yourself to opening infinite dharma gates, clarifying infinite delusions and saving infinite beings, your work goes on and on. So bodhisattvas are not lazy and they're always on the path of something very important for them. But you undertake that path, not because you think something is missing or undone, and you need to fix it, but because this is your joy, and this is your life. This is the only thing that you ever would want to do or ever could do, to just keep on and on, just like the Buddha, 
after his awakening, continued every day for the rest of his life, taking care of his practice with the Sangha. So these are the three characteristics we can expect when we truly understand the three natures, perfect knowledge, abandonment, and accomplishment. Verse 32. Knowledge is non-perception. Abandonment is non-appearance. Attainment is accomplished through non-dual perception. This is direct manifestation. And again, I'll read you uh, the entirety of Jay's comment. Perfect knowledge of this kind is non-perception in the sense that it is objectless. For the objects of ordinary perception are seen to be illusory and the duality of perceiver and perceived that structures perception is transcended. Abandonment of commitment and attachment to imagined phenomena is achieved through the transcendence of instinctive assent to the imagined nature, imagined nature. The attainment of freedom is accomplished through the direct, immediate understanding of the unity of the three natures, and hence the non-dual awareness of all phenomena in their consummate nature. For one who has attained this kind of knowledge, Vasubandhu claims, this cognitive relation to things is direct, intuitive, and immediate, not the consequence of constant philosophical analysis, but the primary way of taking up with the world, albeit through long analysis and practice. That's Jay's comment. So this is the kind of language that I think really is hard for us. Knowledge is non-perception. Abandonment is non-appearance. These are the same knowledge and abandonment that we talked about in the last verse. He's now further defining them. Knowledge is non-perception. Abandonment is non-appearance. It's just like the Heart Sutra is saying, no, there's no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, and so on. Or just the idea of emptiness itself in the, in the tradition, which is defined as non-existence, non-existing. And, and earlier in this text, we have already encountered this kind of language. <clears throat> earlier, Vasubandhu says, the imaginary nature does not exist. This is its fundamental reality. It does not exist. So the problem that we have with this kind of language is that there's no way that we cannot, there's no way that we don't hear this language without a dualistic point of view. Because language is necessarily dualistic. It has to be, if it's going to make any sense. If I say tree, I must mean that a tree actually exists. And therefore, 
I can see it, I can, I can touch it, I can refer to it. And this tree is, a, is not a, a, a cat. It's a tree. It's not the same as something that's not a tree. And I'm not the tree. I couldn't see the tree and refer to it if I were the tree. If, if not, language doesn't make any sense. Uh, if I'm going to have any kind of sensible speaking and communication with other people, I must have the idea that if something exists, it exists. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. So no wonder, you know, it seems these expressions just sort of throw us off. Nevertheless, you know, Buddhist language is consistently insistent on saying that things that we know exist don't exist, like eyes and ears and so on. Or here, perception is non-perception. Appearance is non-appearance. And when you hear stuff like this, it might just, you know, turn your brain off because it doesn't make sense. And you might well wonder, can't the Buddhists do better than this? Or can't they be better communicators? Can't they find a way to, like, say this that doesn't have this kind of a problem? You would think, you know. But no, they're using this kind of language on purpose. I think it's probably less difficult, like I said earlier, if you understand Indian philosophical systems, but even for, for people who do in ancient, in ancient times, it was still difficult. For instance, um, in Indian philosophy, which is you know the basis of all Buddhist philosophy, to actually exist means specifically to exist as a completely independent entity. Because if an entity is not completely independent, then it doesn't exist. It's just part of something else. It's not a really existing thing. If my existence is not independent, but depends for its fundamental reality on something else, I cannot be said to exist as an entity. So I don't exist if I'm not independent. That's a sort of cardinal point of Indian Buddhist thought. So anything inherently dependent on something outside its own existence cannot exist as such. And that explains the idea of non-existence as the Buddhist texts use it. Nothing exists as an independent entity, and therefore nothing exists as such. That's the sense in which they're using non-existence. And one thing that the Buddhist thinkers are very adamant about is that when they talk about non-existence, they are not being nihilistic. The non-existence they're speaking about does not mean that absolutely things don't exist and that everything is sort of nothing. 
or blank or fake or you know not significant because they constantly re reassert over and over again that the emptiness of dharmas does not mean that karma doesn't operate and it does not mean that our practice of kindness and caring is not important they explain yeah where's grandma i think upstairs i think she's not here did you lose your grandma oh sorry no interruption I'm giving I'm giving a Dharma talk. Hi Nora. Hi. Waving goodbye. Oh, goodbye. See you. See you. Take you. care, you guys. Oh, you're going too, Luna. Oh, yeah, of course you are. Have a safe uh, trip home. Thank you, thank you. We will. See you. We will. Thank you for all the hospitality. Miss you guys already. Okay. Bye bye. Love you. Bye. No, see you in Mexico. That's right. So the the, the non-existence of my son, who just was there, and my granddaughter, I I I really understand their non-existence. I really understand that I cannot cling to them or possess them, or control their fate or their destiny. But that doesn't mean that I don't care about them, that I don't love them. In fact, it's the opposite. I think I wouldn't love them as much if I thought they had to be a certain way rather than another way. <clears throat> Certainly, if I thought they had to reflect me somehow, they had to be positive reflections on me. That would be really neurotic. That would not be what I would call love. So the sages always always say that. They say, no, the emptiness of things does not mean <clears throat> that things don't matter. Emptiness is not nihilism. When they speak about emptiness in this way, they're trying to indicate that they're outside the duality of existence, non-existence as being exclusive realities. When they say that perception is non-perception, what they mean is that perceptions do not exist at all as we think they do. That things as they appear to us don't exist as we think they do. So why don't they just say it like that, you know? Why don't they say it, instead of saying it doesn't exist, why don't they just say it doesn't exist like we think it does? Why do they insist on this language? I think they insist on this language. Because if you say things exist, but not in the way we think they do, you are implying another kind of independent existence. Oh, the world doesn't exist like I think it does, but there's another way the world really exists. But that's not quite right. Because remember, the three natures are simultaneous and non-dual, and there really isn't anything that you can hold on to. 
the complete realized nature is not some other kind of existence that really exists. Remember, all the definitions of it are that there is no such thing as the completely realized nature other than the recognition that the imaginary nature is non-existent. The completely realized nature is not some kind of existence that really exists, a truer world than the false imaginary world. It is the false imaginary world. There isn't any other world. So the Buddhists needed some language to make that clear. That things really exist and really and truly they don't exist at the same time. Really, that's just impermanence, right? Impermanence really is that things exist and don't exist at the same time. And we need, this is jarring language, but we need that kind of jarring language, difficult as it seems to grasp, to make it clear to us that we cannot just substitute one delusion for a higher class Buddhist delusion. This is about abandonment. It's about letting go. It's about going beyond our concepts and our setups and our bright ideas. And as long as we hold out for something to cling to, even if that thing we're clinging to is Buddhahood, some Buddhahood that really exists, we're always going to create more suffering. So I, I'm, I'm sensitive to this point, and I say this all the time, I suppose. Good thing I don't keep track of my Dharma talks, because I, I would realize how much I keep saying the same thing over and over again. I'm always thinking I'm saying something new, you know, even though I know better. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure I'm always saying this this thing that, um, you know, language has is this is this sort of. Uh, yeah, my, my grandson put my, no, my granddaughter put my fingers in a Chinese finger trap, you know. It's like that. You try to pull your fingers out of the Chinese finger trap. And, and you can't, because the more you pull, the more it traps. So language is like that. But poetic language, which is an indelible feature of language, not everybody reads or writes poetry, but poetic language is a feature of language. Even if it's not used, it's there always in the language. And poetic language transcends ordinary language. Because poetic language is language that's trying to express with words what cannot be expressed with words if words are going to remain sensible and useful to us. But a poem is not necessarily sensible and useful in ordinary ways. A poem reaches beyond its language to express something that language uniquely expresses, but not in any of the usual ways. So I'm going to read you a recent poem of mine, and you'll hear in this poem Vasubandhu, everywhere in it. The poem is called, Seriously? Question mark, seriously? And it begins with a fake quotation from uh, some sort of philosopher who sounds like Heidegger. 
but this is, uh, I didn't get this from anywhere. It's just a vague quotation. How can innermost being in unshieldedness in the open without willing come about through willing? The human willing born of desire we must always be living. End of quote. The thick philosopher wonders, reading into the equally thick poet, metaphysical confections like Christmas fruitcakes, pungent and dense. How sad that youth is hope, but hope is dashed for later doesn't arrive, and now is always saturated with never. And poetry writes poems, not poets, who are always mistaken and asleep. Their twisted intentions eliding with the blankness of their means, beyond inside or outside, or in between, life occurs inevitably and by chance, venture, dice roll, board game, played with a light touch by a magician. Illusions, illusion, beyond which nothing further to be designated real. Nice conceit where death's a cipher, an imaginary artifact of little language, an old shoe, necessary, empty word, sound and song we sing in today's night, moments, logical rind. So you notice the poem at the end mentions death, which word doesn't appear anywhere in Vasubandhu's text. And it is not really a subject of Buddhist thought. But actually, death is always the subject of all Buddhist texts. Because when it comes to suffering and clinging, that is the ultimate suffering and clinging, the clinging to life, which we can never hold on to, and which we have never possessed, even though we have the illusion that we do. According to the Three Natures text, there is no such thing as what we call life and death. They're simply the arising and passing away of each thing, each event, on and on. According to the imaginary nature, yes, we are born and we die. According to the complete realized nature, that being born and dying is the ongoing movement of existence, non-existence, that is the true nature of all appearance. And that's why 
Vasubandhu here in this verse refers to appearance as non-appearance. This verse is saying that perfect knowledge is recognizing that perception is non-perception, abandonment of suffering is recognizing that appearance is non-appearance, and to directly experience this feeling for life in our living is the complete realized nature. So in the last verse I will cover tonight, verse 33, he applies all of this to the analogy of the elephant that is his main sort of tool here for explaining all this. Through the not, this is verse 33, through the non-perception of the elephant, the vanishing of its percept occurs. And so does the perception of the piece of wood. Jay's comment. This is how it is in the magic show. Here Vasubandhu returns to the analogy in order to explain the structure of this accomplishment. When you see through the trick, when you stop being taken in by the show, you don't see the elephant. The percept vanishes. One no longer sees the piece of wood as an elephant at all. All of the illusion ceases. So as I said last time, although an earlier verse makes it seem as if the piece of wood that is somehow the background for the conjured elephant actually does exist, while the elephant doesn't, here we learn that the piece of wood doesn't really exist either. For one who realizes the three natures and has perfect knowledge, the spell is broken. And the world appears as it really is, a shining Buddha realm, perfect in its manifestations, but not existing as we think it does. Not caught in the web of confusion and suffering, the Bodhisattva bears witness to the sorrow and beauty of the world as it really is. And to the self, the person, as they really are. And in doing so, becomes a source of blessings for all beings. So I, I ask you and your groups to think about this. Think about this particular crux of that Vasubandhu is stressing here, of perception as non-perception, appearance as non-appearance. In the way that Vasubandhu intends this, how does that strike you in your practice? This question of being in a spell or under a spell and that the spell can be broken and things can sort of break open as they are in the poem, as I say, in the openness, in the open. How does that appear in your practice? 